I'm Scott Weatherford. Welcome to First Baptist Church. I'm, I'm glad you're here. I, I wonder if it's warm enough for you guys. I just want you to know a cold norther has just blown in while we've been in here, and it's about 70 degrees outside. Anybody believe that? No, it's summertime in Texas, and we're going to enjoy the heat. Of course, that makes the, the beautiful waters of the Blanco River even more appealing. I saw some people yesterday laying in the river like a bunch of pigs. I hope it's none of y'all. Uh, <laughs> But it was, uh, it's a good day to lay in the river. A couple of things I want to talk to you about real quick before I jump into this talk. Uh, this talk today, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm anticipating uh, God to say something to our souls today. Uh, it's going to be a long talk, so there'll be snacks afterwards, okay? But uh, here, here's the deal. On next Sunday afternoon, we're going to baptize in the river, actually in the creek, in, in Cypress Creek. Uh, if you're interested in being baptized, if you've not been baptized since you trusted Christ, this is your opportunity to be baptized. Now, we're, I don't want you to be baptized just because you want to get in Cypress Creek. You can go to Blue Hole and do that, okay? This is a, a, a symbol, an outward symbol of an inward movement of God in your life. It's a declaration. Much like I wear this wedding ring, this is not my wedding ring. This is my Tara ring. I belong to Tara. Tara is over working in the children's ministry this morning, but I wear this ring because I belong to her. We were baptized because we belong to Christ. You got that? And you don't have to be baptized a bunch of times, only one time. Now, I've had two wedding rings. I lost the first one. We're not going to tell that story. So one wife, two rings. So, uh, so I guess you say I was re-ringed instead of re-baptized. But nonetheless, uh, that's what this symbol is, and that's exactly what baptism is. So I hope you plan to be there. Also tonight, Wyatt mentioned briefly, we're pausing on the bylaws, which I think is a great thing. It gives us an opportunity to create a better document. Uh, this started before I got here, Okay. So just all y'all know, and uh, now that I'm here, I'm going to have to lead you through it. So uh, we're going to do that together, okay? I figured if I will get blamed for it, I might as well go through it with you, okay? So we're going to do that together, and we're really coming up with a great strategic direction for this church. Our structure should make our relationships richer, don't you believe? A structure that creates bureaucracy is called government, and we want a structure that creates freedom and relationships and a life in peace. I have a new table. I don't know if you noticed this. Hobby Lobby got, uh, has uh, this table is on sale. This stool is on sale. And we bought this because I wanted a smaller table. And uh, we got in the truck yesterday, Friday, after buying it. Tara looked at the stool and it said capacity of 200 pounds. So I'm glad to know that I weigh 200 pounds now. So that's a way to go on a diet, buy a stool that will guarantee your weight. You see, if I sit on it, it hauls, okay? So that's right. So that's, uh, that's, that's a great example of a wonderful weight loss program, all right? Have you, ever got, have you guys ever heard of the Murphy's Law? Murphy's Law says things left in their natural order will go from bad to worse. Isn't that just a terrible saying? Uh, that means that's the outlook of pessimism. That Murphy's Law says things left in their natural order will go from bad to worse. Now, we do know this, that things just deteriorate, don't they? Uh, your, your property deteriorates, your bodies deteriorate. I was talking to a, a, a dear friend of mine who's a radiation oncologist. He's a dear friend, and he says, you know, your health never gets better. It only gets worse. I said, thank you for that cheery news. That's great. And as I was saying that, Tara was holding up my blood pressure medicine and shaking it at me. Going, That's great. That's all forms of encouragement. Things just decay. Why? Because of sin, because of the fall. You know, before sin came into the world, uh, we, we didn't have the, the decay, but sin brought about decay. 
of, of everything, of creation, of us, of our bodies, of everything about who we are. Uh, it just brings decay. Things left in their natural order go from bad to worse. But I want to say this to you. We don't have a natural order. We have a supernatural order. Because we're not controlled by the natural, we're controlled by the supernatural. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. The one who holds our future in his hands. My body may decay, but my soul shall live forever in the presence of God. And so with that thought, I want you to think about this. Life is hard and gets harder. That's another cheerful thought, isn't it? That things grow more complicated as we age. And who you really are comes out when you're under pressure. Now, this is a matter of character. So if we squeeze you, put you under pressure, what comes out of you? This morning, I thought about that as I was brushing my teeth. Now, some of you are just wretched in your toothpaste dispensing. You squeeze the tube from the middle of the tube. You know who you are. You ought to repent. My wife is one of those middle squeezers. Oh, it's terrible. Isn't it terrible? Everybody knows you should squeeze from the bottom and work your way up. Isn't that right? That's the way Jesus did it. <laughs> but nonetheless, wherever, wherever I'm squeezed, the, my context of my character is revealed. And the thing is, when pressures apply to us, we find out who we really are. Now, I said this Wednesday night as we gathered to discuss the bylaws. I said, as we walk through this pressure intensive, you're going to find out about my leadership faster than any other way because I can stand uh, in front of you with the perfunctity of a Sunday morning performance and you never know who I am. You put me in the cauldron of pressure and you will find out what my character is about. Isn't that true? I'll tell you something I'll find out about your character as well. As we walk through things that may be contentious or confusing, that when under the pressure of circumstances, you find out to whom you belong and how you're going to react. You sang this great song today, this, this choir special today, that, um, that said, uh, it's only a heartbeat away. And as the choir was singing that, I was reminding my father the last things he said, kids, don't worry about me, it's just a little dying. And under the pressure of him sitting on the edge of eternity, his character was displayed when he's trusting fully in the Lord. And I think that is finishing well. Now, these quotes really set up this talk because there come, there's coming a time in your life or there has come a time in your life or you're in the middle of the time of your life where you're going to be under siege, where you're going to face pressure, where things are going to surround you and press you and, and you can allow those things to become a barrier to your soul and make you bitter or you can allow those things to become a catalyst for your soul to build your character. How you respond to Jesus matters. You focus on the circumstances and the situations, and you can lose hope. You focus on the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and you become a dispenser of hope. The loss of hope or the abundance of hope. And you will find the restoration and the rescue and the rest of our God. Well, this is all well and good to know, isn't it? But the question is, what do I do when I face these crises in my life? What, how do I respond? How can I live face-to-face -face with God 
when the pressure, or perhaps everything is gone, when it's all pulled away. Now, folks, I want to tell you, I've been there a few times. And as old country preacher said once, I'm not just preaching now, I'm telling the truth. <laughs> and I know God is faithful. And I know he's been faithful in the past. He's faithful in the present. And he'll be faithful in the future. Life in Jesus is a test and a trust. In this world, you will have troubles. But fear not, I have overcome the world. In this life, you might, no, you will have troubles. And I love the fact that Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Now, here's the deal. Life will bring trials and tests. Trials are circumstances that grow you. And sometimes trials come because you have brought them upon yourself. Sometimes trials come because those around you, you've been sucked up in the vortex of their stupidity. And therefore, you have trials. Sometimes trials come because of uh, just natural circumstances. In 2015, this city experienced a great trial of the Great Flood. Uh, and part of the, the welcoming package you gave to us, uh, Tara and I, was this book about the flood, and Tara's been reading it at night. And she's been telling me stories about it and God's miraculous rescue and how this city responded, how this church responded with great heroism, stepping into the, to the vast need, how you guys became heroes to this community. One thing I heard about you was that before that time, people considered First Baptist Church a little bit elite and aloof, but no more. Because through a trial, you showed your character. And then there's tests. Tests come as God wants to grow you. Now, James said this in first, the first chapter of James. I, I love the book of James. Martin Luther didn't like the book of James. He didn't think it ought to be in the Bible. Uh, just a thought, y'all grow up Lutherans, uh, that Brother Martin didn't like the book of James. But James said this, consider it all joy when various trials come your way. You should rub your hands and go, oh boy, here we go. That's crazy. He said, because it's an opportunity to prove your character. So tests come to lessons to teach you to be more like Jesus. Trials and tests. Now they look the same and they feel the same, but the purpose is the same for you to become like Jesus. Uh, I have, uh, I've moved my office. My office was down on the hallway, and, and I'm noisy, and the walls there are thin, and nobody could get any work done because Tara says, I don't talk, I shout. And I said, baby, I have a robust baritone voice. I just talk loud. I'm just loud. I'm a loud person. Have y'all noticed that? that? I'm just a loud person. And so they've moved me to the other end of the building. I think they would move me to the garage, could they? But I'm down at the other end of the building, and, and I have a whiteboard. I love a whiteboard. I think on the whiteboard, and I wrote everything we do is so that we might become, so we might honor God and become like Jesus. Everything we do as a church, that we might honor God and that we would become like Jesus. Now, this fall, we're going to do a series called First Life, and we're going to dig into what does it mean to become like Jesus and this series could change your life forever. It could change your friend's life forever as they hear the truth. We quote, quote Romans 8, 28, 
For God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But you can't forget 29 goes with 28. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son. Become like his son. Some people camp out as as a verse of election or predestination, but I want you to see it in the light of God building your character so that you might be like Christ. God causes everything to work so you might become like Christ. Even your sinful things, even your bad decisions, God uses everything in our lives. The great theologian, British theologian C.S. Lewis said it this way, that God whispers to us in our comfort, but he shouts to us in our pain. And I think you guys know that to be true. I've said that before. So this morning, I want want us to allow King David's life to become a teaching point for us so that when we go through these circumstances and trials of our life, these tremendous pressures in our life, we will know how to respond. And we could respond like a guy, like us, who is living all for God's glory. Are you, you guys ready for this? That's good. That's six of you. That's outstanding. What about the rest of y'all? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for what you want to say to us this morning. And I pray that you will speak through me, that these words I have to say, these thoughts that I have to say, the, these, these concepts that we have to bring, they'll not be mine, but they'll be yours, and that you'll customize this talk for this people, whether they're here live or, or listening on the Internet at some other point, or even joining us live, I pray that you will speak through me today. I thank you that you are faithful when I'm not faithful. You're good when I'm not good. You're consistent when I'm inconsistent, and you're God of all. So, Jesus, I'm yours, and so let's go. And we pray this in your strong name. Amen. Now, I want you to turn to your neighbor and say to them, leave me alone. You really need to listen to this talk. Will you do that? Yeah. Dan's looking for somebody to talk to. Okay. All right, you found somebody. That's good. That's good. Here's the first thing I want you to hold on to. Now, we're going to be in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30. If you want to turn with your Bibles there, we're going to jump around a little bit in that section of 1 Samuel because you have to look at this in the whole context of what was going on in David's life. Now, I'll set it up historically, and then we'll jump into it. David was on the run from King Saul, and David knew that he was going to be king. The Lord had anointed him king, but in the circumstances of his life, David became desperate and started taking matters in his own hands. Has God ever whispered to you a promise and that it's been slow in delivering and so then you take matters into your own hand? Have you ever, ever done that? Okay, I'm the only one. I'll have a series online coming pretty soon. That you become desperate and you want to do things. Maybe you desperately financially or relationally or location-wise, about a home, about a house, things like you become desperate, desperate. You take matters in your own hands. David decided it was better for him to live amongst his arch enemies, the Philistines, than it would to be living in the land of Israel. So David does a crazy thing. He moves to the land of to the Philistines, and he actually volunteers to be a part of the enemy's army. This is crazy. This is David. Saul has killed his thousands. David killed his tens of thousands. Philistines. David, who has asked for a a dowry for Saul's daughter, and Saul asked for 100 foreskins of Philistines, and he did 200. This is David living among the arch enemy. 
Now, first of all, I'm thinking, what was the king of the Philistines thinking? The Philistines. What was he let David in? And David pretended to be loyal. In fact, in this period of time, David, get this, became a thug and a thief. He started raiding villages, not Israelite villages, but other people groups, the the Amalekites or the Amalekites, whatever you want to call them, uh, the Jebusites, some other groups. He, he would raid them, kill everybody there, take their stuff. Give a thug and a thief because he took matters into his own hands. Now, does it sound like a guy after God's own heart is a thug and a thief? No. So David was at a place of desperation. And God was cooking up a revitalization. It was a no good, dirty, rotten, very bad day. Let me read. Three days later, David had gone to the Philistine camp he'd, to the king and he declared his allegiance and they were about to attack Israel and the king's general said, don't trust David, don't put him in the battle with us because once the battle gets going, he'll turn on us and you know his mighty men are fierce and they could whoop us by themselves Let's don't do that. And so David was sent back, and he was a little bit miffed by this. Uh, And David was, he'd become, he'd lost his way. And so what happened? Three days later, when David's men arrived back, arrived home at their town of Ziglag. Now, we don't talk about Ziglag much. In fact, I've heard very few sermons other than mine on Ziglag. But Ziglag was a place of David was running to and running away from. Running to for refuge, running away from God and God's presence. And David had settled in the town of Ziglag. They found that the Amalekites, or the Amalekites, had made a raid into the Nevia at Ziglag and burned it to the ground. Now hold on to that, the Amalekites, because I'm going to tell you something about them, or the Amalekites, either way you want to say that. They carried off the women and children and everyone else without killing anyone, which is miraculous, because these were a, well, just a vile group of people. And this is a group of people that when Moses was taking the Hebrew children out of the Egypt into the promised land, the Amalekites were picking off the weak ones, the children and the women and the older folks. They'd come in and they would pick them off and kill them and take their stuff. And, and God finally said to King Saul, deal with these Amalekites. Wipe them out. Now, when you think about a genocide, as it were, in the Scripture, I don't have time to go into it, but it's very different from what you would think about. And at some other point, I'll take time to explain what that means and, and how you'll understand it. But this was a perverse people in a perverse culture doing perverse things. And God was bringing his judgment on these people. And Saul didn't do it. His disobedience caused everyone trouble. And I'll talk more about that in a little while. When David and his men saw that the ruins and realized what happened to their families, they wept until they could weep no more. Have you ever been there? Tara and I were driving through purgatory this morning, and we talked about that, that there's been seasons in our lives where we've wept until we could weep no more. We've wept over our children until we could weep no more. We wept over rebellion in our churches until we could weep no more. We wept over the condition of our cities that we've lived in until we could weep no more. We wept over the condition of our marriage 
until we could weep no more. We wept over the condition of our finances until we can weep no more. We've been there. I think many of you have been there as well. David had two wives, which were one too many. Anome from Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal from Carmel. We talked about Nabal and we talked about dealing with a fool. They were among the captured. Now David was in great danger, get this. David was in great danger because of all his men were very bitter about losing their sons and daughters and they began talking about stoning him. Now, I want you to look at me a second. We have a misconception of what stoning is. We think stoning is they line somebody up and they chunk rocks at them. It's not what it was. Stoning, when they stoned someone in, in biblical times, they would take them to a precipice, usually higher than 10 or 15 or 20 feet, and they would push them off the precipice, and then they would throw rocks down upon them until they were dead. That was a stoning. That was a stoning. They hoped the fall would kill you, but if it didn't, they'd finish you off with the pummeling of rocks from down from it wasn't about, you know, chunking. Like, I, I think if we did a stoning today, most of y'all couldn't throw a rock hard enough to kill a cat. <laughs> but if we push you off something to drop rocks on you, now some of y'all could bring it. You'd be dangerous at a stoning. I remember my brother picking up a rock and hitting my grandfather's prize rooster in the head with it, and the rooster falling out, and we watched my brother fall on his knees and beg the Lord to rest rescue and resurrect that rooster, and God did, and I think that's why Stan's a preacher today. But nonetheless, <laughs> I digress. But this was a no good, dirty, rotten, very bad day for David. And those days come without, without warning. They come with a diagnosis. They come with a revelation. They come with, a, 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 come with a, a, maybe a crisis that had been brewing that you were unaware of. Sometimes they come when you expect it. You've been watching it build been watching it build. And this was about as bad as it gets. And the emotions of that day were devastating to who these people were. Now, I said this last week, and I hope you caught it, that the devastation of your emotions is trumped by your devotion. We cannot be driven by our emotions. We have to be driven by our devotions. Now, I'm not talking about reading your Bible and praying, which you need to be doing. In fact, the whole 99 days of prayer has been about us getting in the Word together and focusing on God together. It's been very intentional. As this week, we pursued holiness, and we continue for the next several weeks looking at personal holiness. So what does that mean? Uh, you have a memory verse that you're supposed to be memorizing. I told Wyatt, I said, next week, Wyatt, I want you to lead us in our memory verse. He said, I'm glad it's next week. <laughs> So Wyatt is on notice to have his memory verse down and, uh, and be holy as even I am holy, it says in Peter, that, that we could get this soaking in. But your emotions are trumped by your devotions that were devoted to God. They were holding on to him. So my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I said these things last week. And in, the, in the, the devastation of their emotion, they cried, as I said, till they could cry no more. And these men and their emotions were turning on their leader. The very guy, they said, David, we are yours because we see the purposes of God in your life. The very guys, and we'll talk about this later in this series, who went to the well of Bethlehem for David. 
The very guys who, who eradicated the other four giants of the Philistine army. The guys like Benaniah, the son of Jedidiah, who chased a lion into a pit on a snowy day and killed it because that lion needed to go. And they were about to turn on David because their emotions were trumping their devotion, even to the man, to the leader. And then God tells us this story for our benefit. He gives us an account for, for our good, this historical evidence for us to learn from. We talk about biblical revelation and, and as looking at God's word and and when you look at God's word, you cannot just look at it historically and contextually. You have to look at it as a living document. I was talking to my friend who is a world-renowned theologian. Actually, I grew up with him. His name's Dr. Bill Warren. He is one of the, the most noted uh, biblical theologians in the world today. And he's going to come to Wimberley and teach you guys the book of Mark. We're working out the details. You don't want to miss that. I mean, to tell you, it's going to be richer than a barnyard. It's going to be good. And, and Billy said, I was talking to Billy the other day, and I said, Billy, tell me about God's Word. He said, oh, Scott, you got to understand, we will never fully understand God's Word because it's living. All Scripture is valuable. And God gives us this account to say to us, pay attention. Pay attention. You all have a ziglag. And in the the overwhelming, uh, fierce emotional reaction can come crazy reactions that really destroy what God really wants to do. You see, I think many times in Christianity, we have a false view. It's called the prosperity gospel, where God blesses you when you're healthy, wealthy, and wise. And we hold on to this, this wrong view of the theology of God. We think we can speak a blessing into being. The ancients believed once you spoke a word, it could not be retracted. But that's what they believed. Now, you, we all know that God is not into ancient mysticism. He's into actually into practicality. And, and many times we have this, this feeling. We'll say, well, you know, I got a new house because God bless me. You ever said, I, I've gone through cancer because God is blessing me? He's blessing me with a burden that I cannot bear on my own, and he's teaching me to be fully dependent upon him. He's giving me an adversity so he may mold my character to Christ's likeness. Now, we think we got a jingle in our pocket and a clean bill of health, and we're smarter than our neighbors that we're, uh, we're truly blessed. But I want to say this to you. I want you, I want you to lean in a little bit. Oh, just lean in a little bit. I know some of y'all, it's hard to lean in. You lean in as much as you can. Some of you lean over anyway, right, all the time. But as you lean in, I want you, I want you to listen to this. The greatest blessing is that you belong to Jesus. That's the greatest blessing. Because my future is secure in the one I place my trust in. The banker says, I'm broke. King Jesus says, you're a heir to righteousness. The doctor says, 
you're going to die. But Jesus says, you will not die but live to declare the glory of the Lord. It's all framed in our devotion and our dependence upon a holy God. You see, when it's all gone, when, when adversity comes, it's a great time, an opportunity for self-examination. This is something that I think a lot about. I deal with leaders all over the world. And one of the things I deal with leaders about is self-awareness. Uh, I, I have to deal with, I have to be aware of myself and how I come across and what I say and how do I say it and, and my body language and I'm loud and I walk into a room and it's loud and, and people, they, they, they often mistake my confidence for arrogance and sometimes it's true and, and I need to be aware of myself. I, I know one thing, I get this, I will tell you all a little secret. When I feel diminished, I power up and become a jerk. <laughs> Lynn, you've been around me too long, sister. Okay, that's, I, I, I just, I, you see, that's the problem we get to know you. I could call your name. Okay, anyway, that, that, but that's just, that's true. And I have to be self-aware. I have to be self-aware. Self-awareness is a gift of the Spirit. Are you self-aware? Do you know how you come across, how your body language is, how you come across? You see, an unexamined life is, is dangerous. Let me read this. But David kept thinking to himself. Now, this is in 1 Samuel 27.1. This is how David got into this mess because he wasn't self-aware. But David kept thinking to himself, someday Saul is going to get me. The best thing I can do is to escape to the Philistines. Then Saul will stop hunting for me in Israelite territory, and I'll finally be safe. He was not self-aware. You see, he took things into his own hands. And when he wasn't self-aware, when he wasn't paying attention to who he is and what he does and what he wants, he started taking matters into his own hands. And so David and his men headed back to the land of the Philistines where the Philistine army went to Jezreel. David was a part of this. And this is what we, I like to call stinking thinking. It's just this stinking thinking. That I, God's not going to do this, so I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I know I've been anointed king, but I'm going to run away. And David took things in his own hands, and he took it out of God's hands. David forgot to whom he belonged, and he forgot the anointing on his life. And David was in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong folks. Show me your friends, and I'll show you your future. We talk to students about this all the time. Your character is developed by the people you associate with or with whom you associate, because it becomes driven by this. Now, are you saying, uh, Scott, now, are we not supposed to have friends who are far away from the Lord? Absolutely, but you do not influence, you influence them. Don't you let them influence you. Back uh, a long time ago, I played competitive softball, and uh, I, I, I like to play on those teams. I didn't play church softball because I wanted to play competitive softball. And I played with those big old boys that hit lots of home runs. I got to play with those guys. And I joined a team with another pastor. He was a, a good softball player, and I was all right. And we played together on this team. And they were a bunch of heathens. I mean, beer-drinking, women-chasing, hell-bound degenerates. And Tara would bring the kids to the game. And she said, I can't bring the kids to the game. It's too nasty for them. And I was there, but I had another pastor with me. And you know what we saw? We saw this team of heathens become a team of believers. It was funny. When I started playing for them, my first few at-bats, I hit home runs, and they, ought to like, they liked me then. 
They called it preacher power. Got preacher power. And that allowed me to speak into their lives. At first, they wouldn't talk to me. They'd kind of one by one, they'd slip down and they'd say, hey, preacher, yeah, I got trouble with my wife. I'd go, really? <laughs> Imagine that. If you'd leave that one alone, you wouldn't have trouble with that one. It, it just, but I had to be the influencer and not the influenced. But I had a partner with me. Folks, if you go live in hell, you better have somebody with you. And somebody with you becomes the rescue. While David was there, he was a thug and a thief. I told you that. He had become deceitful. Now, when I first wrote this talk, I thought about, wow, what was going on with David? See, before David was anointed as king and, and the Spirit of the Lord came to dwell upon him, his former life might have been a little sketchy because his brother says something that just kind of opens a window to maybe what was going on with David. Now, God told, told Samuel to go find a, a man after my own heart. David was work, God was working on David. But David's brother says something to David there when he was facing Goliath in that period of around um, 1 Samuel 17. He says, David, what are you doing up here at this battle? I know your deceit. And as I was writing this talk, that jumped out at me. I know your deceit. And the thing is, even though David was a man after God's own heart, he had a little darkness in him. Don't we all? Don't we all? And to be self-aware is to look at the darkness in my life and to know my propensity for sin. You see, while David was there, away from God, running from the source of God, for a while, for a year and 14 months, Scripture says, he lived among the Philistines. Get this. He wrote no psalms. He sang no songs because he was running from the source of life. I thank the great theologian uh, Warren Wiersbe for showing that to me in his commentary. He wrote nothing and he sang nothing because he was on the run. When things fall apart, take a good look at yourself first. I like to blame everybody else. Don't you? I say it's them dadgum kids or it's that wife who won't listen to me or it's that lawyer who's a scallywag and that banker who's a crook or that doctor who doesn't know what he's talking about probably went to Baylor <laughs> and he got a great education yeah okay all right, all right okay redeem myself Tara has the thing she says to me she, she not only does the focus fox which I need but she also says this what are you doing what should you be doing now when she says that to me I'm often not doing what I should be doing. And she says it not as a place of self-discovery, but a place of pastoral correction. <laughs> what are you doing? What should you be doing? Don't you think it's wise for us to stop every now and then and ask ourselves those questions? What are you doing? What should you be doing? Maybe when you're caught up in your habit, what are you doing? What should you be doing? Maybe when you're lingering over your hurt, 
What are you doing? What should you be doing? Maybe when you're grousing about about your hang-up, your preference, what are you doing? What should you be doing? It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. The saddest, one of the saddest things about being a pastor is seeing people who never take responsibility for their own spiritual condition. They never take responsibility, and they live an unaware life. I'm going to say this to you, and I'm going to say it to you in love. If you ever say this, well, I'm just not being fed, it's your own fault. Grocery stores open. It's your own fault. We live in a day and an age of abundance of food source for folks living for Jesus. But most of us are consuming without contributing, and therefore we're constipated spiritually. Probably won't say that in the second service. It just didn't sound very nice. But if you're not being fed, it's your own fault. I've heard people say to me as a pastor, I said, well, I'm serving up cheese sandwiches. Line up and get you one. I mean, if you want the goodness of God's Word being bread and honey, milk and meat, you got to get into it yourself. And, and we're going to provide opportunities for you. We're going to keep the pantry full. You got kids? Raise your hand. Got kids? You got kids? Raise your hand. Or if you had kids, or you, okay, put your hands down. Your kids ever say to you, we ain't got nothing to eat in this house. You ever hear that? And there's all kinds of things to eat. They just don't want none of it. It's the same thing as we are as believers. And living a life unaware, sometimes you don't realize how you're coming across. You don't realize that your negativity creates disunity. Now, I've said this to you twice, and I'll say it to you again on occasions. When we have business meetings, I'll say, you will get better information in this room than you will in that parking lot. In this room and not in that parking lot. Because I've, I've been a pastor a long time, and I know people will go out in the parking lot and they'll run their uninformed mouth and create disunity in the body instead of being honest and dealing with people openly. Is that too hard, y'all? That's called being loving. It's called being your pastor. And that God wants you to preserve the unity through the bond of peace. And that we'll do anything to quell gossip. And we'll work together to love one another love one another. You are not helping someone when you step into the middle of a controversy and you go to someone else on someone else's behalf. You are loving them when you say, come on, let's go talk to them. Take them to talk to them or tell them to shut their ecclesiastical pie hole. (laughs) You are responsible for you. God's given you the gift of self-control. An unexamined life is a dangerous life. i got to finish this talk. Okay, David found personal renewal in the middle of his troubles. David found the source of life. But David found strength in the Lord as God. Then he said to Abathar the priest, bring me the ephod. That was the symbol of God's presence. So Abathar brought it, and David put this ephod on, this vest on, that symbolized God's presence. Then David asked the Lord, should I chase after this band of raiders, and will I catch him? Then the Lord told him, yes. Go after them. You will surely recover everything that was taken from you. Now, this was a big deal. David hadn't heard from God in in a year and four months. 
At all this period of time, David hadn't heard from God, and he sought the Lord in public in front of his men. This wasn't in a back room with just he and Abathar. This was in public with his men. And these guys were about to do what? Stone him. And David let this adversity drive him back into God. Now, this, these guys, they followed David because they expected him to be a spiritual leader. Not just a military leader or a political leader, but a spiritual leader. And they wanted a king, a leader, who was a holy man, a holy. And David publicly declared this. And his drifting away from God affected his whole army. Now, I want to ask you a question. Do you want your pastor to be a proficient pontificator or a holy man? Do you want your pastor to have a brilliant business mind or to be a holy man? Do you want your pastor to have st- just stimulating, hilarious sermons or be a holy man? Holy man holy man because all the other stuff is just fertilizer holiness is what god desires and it's what you know what i I want you to be holy people that means set apart by god that doesn't mean perfect that doesn't mean legalist that means set apart to make a difference for god you see god david knew the source of his life and his leadership was the lord He wrote, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He wrote um, Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I be afraid? David knew those things. And when these guys, these men of David, heard David get before God and hear a word from God, and God said, David, you're going to get everything back, these guys were fired up, giddy up, let's go. And you see the zeal of the Lord return to David and his men, and they went out and they captured everything. There's nothing like a clear word from God to inspire God's people to do the impossible. There's nothing like a clear word from God. Mm. At First Baptist Wimberley, we have a clear word from God. You know what Jesus said? Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It is by no coincidence that our area has a place named purgatory and the devil's backbone. (laughs) And God could do the impossible from this place for his glory. Someone asked me Wednesday night, he said, that thing you read, I see a church Will you make that available? I said, absolutely. So, Dan, this week we'll put it on the, on the web. And we'll also have copies for you next week that you can pick up. I see a church. And it's not about what I see. It's what God sees. And I invite you to join into this process. You see, when you fail to obey God, others will suffer. But when you, fail, when you obey God, everyone thrives. See, the Amalekites or the Amalekites who took away everything were existed because of Saul's sin. Saul didn't do what God asked him to do. It's very interesting about the Amalekites, the Malachites. I may have said this to you before, but I'll say it to you again. Now, think about this for a second. If you trace the Amalekites down through history because Saul failed to do what he was supposed to do, you know who killed Saul? An Amalekite, an Amalekite. They killed Saul on Mount Gilboa. And then they, they also 
uh, they, of course, they ravage David's family, Ziglog, then they kill Saul, and then you push down a little further. Haman, the arch enemy of Mordecai, the book of Esther, was an Amalekite, Amalekite. Huh. Tried to genocide the Jewish people in Amalekite. King Herod, who killed all the babies in Bethlehem. He wasn't Jewish. He was a, an Amalekite, an Amalekite. He was. Yasser Arafat, the PLO. Now, he wasn't a Malachite, but I thought that was a good thing just to throw in. Yeah, just to... <laughs> Had you, didn't I? Yeah, that's it. All these things built up upon, built up upon, built up upon, built up upon, built up that created because one guy sinned against God, everything overwhelmed them. So deal with your sins. Don't leave Amalekites in your life to destroy the future generations. So be aware. Last couple of things that I'll be done. Of course, you know when a preacher says that, there's a lot more. God is the restorer. David got back everything that the Amalekites had taken. He rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, small or great, sons or daughters, or anything else had been taken. David uh, brought everything back. He also recovered all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock. The plunder belonged to David, they said, because David was obedient to God. And in the middle of this, God provided a guide for them to find the, the Amalekites or the Amalekites. They'd taken all the stuff. They, they started out, they didn't know where they were going. They saw tracks in the desert, but then they found an Egyptian. An Egyptian became their guide. The very ones that held them in slavery became their guide to restoration. I just thought that was rather ironic that God used that. Everything was restored, even the faith of, their, of David's men in him and in their God. See, God is the restorers. So what have the Amalekites taken from you that you would want God to restore back to you? Maybe it's taken your faith, your joy, your peace, your hope, taking your children, taking your stuff, Today could be the day of great restoration. And then when you're, great, when you're grateful, you become generous. You give your life away. Gratitude produces generosity. Then David returned to, to Brook Bosar and met up with the 200 men that had been left behind because they were too exhausted to go with him. And they went out to meet David and his men, and David greeted them joyfully. We got it back, guys! but some evil troublemakers among David's men. Notice there were evil troublemakers even among David's men. And the thing is, that any kind of group or movement of God, there's always going to be the rabble. But you can't let the rabble influence. You need to identify the rabble, you need to love the rabble, but you don't let put the rabble into leadership. Okay? And they said, they didn't go with us, so they can't have any of the plunder we recovered. Give them back your wives and children. Tell them to get lost. Be gone. But David said, no, my brothers, don't be selfish with what the Lord has given us. He has kept us safe and helped us defeat this band of raiders that attacked us. Who will listen when you talk like this? We will share and share alike, and those who go to battle and those who watch the equipment. And the Bible, the Bible goes on to say, and from this day forward, it became the practice of the Israelite army. That generosity was the, was the result of gratitude. You know, the Lord's been good, so I want to give. The Lord's blessed this church, so I want, to, I want to give. I want to be generous. 
So we have to confront the stingy, confront the stinginess in our own heart and the hearts of others, and that we need to share in the excess because your darkest days could and should result in your highest praise and your greatest generosity. I got to quit. Murphy's Law says this, things in the left in their natural order will go from bad to worse. But King Jesus said this, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and I will make straight your path. King Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. King Jesus says, I will never let any man snatch you out of my hand. King Jesus says, you are more than conquerors through Christ has loved you, and nothing can separate you from the love of God. Death can't, life can't, demons can't, angels can't, the present can't, and the, and the future can't. Nothing in all creation will ever separate you from the love of Christ. Christ's law says, you are more than conquerors. So live like it. In the middle of your adversity, Lift your hands and say, God, you brought me to it. You'll bring me through it. And I will trust in you. And even if I die, ain't nothing but a little dying. Because I will live forever with King Jesus.